Well, good morning. I don't know if you can read that bottle, but if you could read it closely, it says thirst quencher on it. Um, it reminds me, oh, I don't know, this goes back probably almost 20 years ago. My family was up in Maine, and we had gone up to Acadia National Park. Has anybody ever been to Acadia National Park? It's a wonderful, wonderful park, isn't it? And I, I got this idea. Uh, it, was, it was August, and one of the, one of the particular um, hikes that you can take was for the precipice. And it was, you can only do it in August. There was some issue with eagles or something. I don't know what it was, mating and stuff. But, so I decided to take my three older kids on that, on, on that uh, hike. My wife took, kept the three younger ones, and I did something really stupid. I looked at it, and I said, oh, I, I, I think we can get up there in an hour, get back down in a half hour. We don't need any water. I know, I know, exactly right. And so, man, we, we and it was, it was one hard climb. It wasn't just a hike, it was a climb. Uh, they had ladders and all kinds of other things. It took us over two hours to get to the top of that thing. And I was famished. My kids were famished. We were all thirsty. And I was thinking, boy, was that dumb. But it was blueberry season. Wild blueberries all along the trails. And all the way down that trail, we ate more blueberries than you could possibly imagine. And man, did it taste good to have my hunger and my thirst quenched. You know what that's like. Hot summer day. The mowing the lawn or working outside. You come in and you take that water or that iced tea and you're like, oh man, does that taste good. You, you, you know the feeling, don't you? And as wonderful as that is, and it is, it's part of life, it doesn't last, does it? it it's great, but it doesn't last. Within an hour, I'm thirsty again. And so one of the questions for me is this. Is there anything deeper than that thirst? Is there anything that lasts longer when it's quenched? That answer is going to be answered for us in John chapter 4. So let's, let's walk through it together. If you have your Bibles... Go ahead and turn with me, if you would, over to John chapter 4, where we want to talk about the living water quenching our deepest thirst forever. Um, let's, let's just look again at uh, John chapter 4 and verse 4. So, now he had, he had to go through Samaria, the Bible tells us in verse 4 of John 4. Why? They're actually, if you consider it, there's actually several ways to get from Galilee to Judea. But this text says he had to go through Samaria. And, and as a good reader, you ought to ask yourself, why does he say that? Because in God's sovereign plan, he had a mission with the Samaritan woman and with the Samaritans. Doesn't it always work that way? So the text says he had to go through Samaria because there was a mission there. He would go back to Galilee, but he would go there first. What I want you to do with me is this. I'm hoping this chart helps you. Um, 
made that this up this week, and I, there's a bump in it I don't like now, but oh well, we'll leave it alone on the reversal. But maybe it'll kind of help us think our way through the story. Any, any, most good stories have a, this kind of a sense of a bell, bell curve to them, don't they? And this one does too. And so I want to kind of work through the story. You can see that there's going to be tension, and at some point there's going to be reversal. It's really powerful stuff. But something else I want you to see is this. Who is this story about? Well, clearly it's about Christ. The encounter with Christ is everything. But whose encounter with Christ? Clearly the Samaritan woman. Yes. And we're going to look at that. That's going to be the big one. But there's a second encounter with Christ in this passage. And it's between Jesus and his disciples. So here's the point. Whoever you are, wherever you are in life, this text will touch you. There's a message here for you. So let's run through the plot, and as we do, watch how these different encounters kind of move back and forth together. But this is something that Jesus just didn't happen upon. This is something Jesus specifically wanted to actually do. So, verse 5. So he came to the town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. It's all part of the setting. And here's what's interesting to me. This whole story is surrounded by physical thirst and hunger. Do you realize that? Jesus comes, and Jesus is hungry, and Jesus is thirsty, and Jesus is physically tired. The disciples come, and because he's physically hungry and they're physically hungry, they go into town to try to get some food. And Jesus sits there by a well, tired and thirsty. And, and I want to come back to that, but that, that's really, really, really significant. So notice what happens, the, the actual incident itself, verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had already gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan. Here's what we find. In this encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, she's going to resist, resist, and resist three times. But eventually, Christ and his grace is going to break through. And in the first one, she understands protocol. Jesus is totally breaking protocol. Doesn't he do that a lot in the Gospels? Like, you're not supposed to hang out with the rabble. Where do you find Jesus? Eating with them, for heaven's sakes. Stay away from people who are sick and can, can, if they touch you, you'll become diseased. Where do you find Jesus? With them. So you're in a world where Jesus is always breaking protocol. And so the mere fact that a, that a man who is a Jew would ask a Samaritan, number one, and a woman in particular, number two, is totally breaking protocol. But the gospel has a way of breaking protocol, doesn't it? 
and just going in where no one else does. So she has this resistance to him. And we don't know it yet at this time, although we suspect something. It's noon. You know when you would normally get water at a well? In the early morning. And you may not know it at this point, if if this was the first time you're reading it, but you're wondering, why is a woman coming for water at noontime? We don't know exactly why yet, but it seems strange. She's not there with the other women. She's there by herself. But we certainly know there's distance between Samaritans and Jews. That's quite obvious. Um, so, So verse 9 says, For the Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus said unto her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would, he would have given you living water. Now, folks, I want you to think for just a moment. <laughs> like on the movie there, that, that, which was really well done. If a guy is breaking protocol and asks you for a drink, and then you say, you shouldn't be asking me for a drink, and then he looks back at you and says, if you knew who I were, was, I can give you living water. Wouldn't you be thinking about that time? Then why are you asking me for water? I mean, we really, wouldn't you? Like, hello, if you can do the water deal, why are you talking to me? But what she doesn't realize is Jesus is pushing at a much deeper level, isn't he? She's scooting around here on the, phys- on the physical. And Jesus is already pushing down into the spiritual, the deepest need in a person's life. But she doesn't realize that she's just thinking like, that's kind of a wacky thing to say. Well, wouldn't you feel that way too? I, I, you know, I'm, in all fairness to this woman, kind of makes sense, except that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 11, notice what happens here. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Um, who do you think you are? <laughs> are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Hey, there's only one water source, you know, and I'm standing at it. You're not greater than Jacob, are you? Did she know what she was saying? Did she know the setup? (laughs) Greater than Jacob? Yeah, far greater than Jacob. But she doesn't know any of that yet. The Samaritans, the Samaritans went back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob too. But because they were considered half-breeds, Purebred Jews didn't want to have anything to do with Samaritans. And the Samaritans had developed their own worship system. And they, they, they actually didn't worship in Jerusalem itself. So they really were two different religious systems. So all of that is going on here. So she's happy to go back to Jacob, but she's just wondering, what is this guy talking about? Look at what Jesus goes on to say, just at one level confuses her even more. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. 
Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Folks, if you're thinking merely at the physical level, does anything Jesus say right now make any sense to you? You're thinking, hey, pal, if you've got water that you'll never thirst from again, why are you asking me for water? Do you see? She is just working here, working here the whole time. And Jesus is pushing down here. And although it's debated, if you look down there in verse uh, 15, where the woman says, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. I don't, I mean, there's debate there. Is she saying at this point, not understanding what Jesus is saying, just saying, Sir, I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but if I don't have to come to this well anymore physically, I'd be happy to please tell me how. She may be saying it like that. She also may be, as on the movie, I think the movie has this one correct. I think she's probably being a little bit sarcastic at this point. Sir, which doesn't make any sense because you're asking me for water right now. If you can give me that kind of water so that I don't have to come here anymore, I would be happy to have that. But why are you asking me? Do you see? I I, I think that's probably more what's going on here. (sighs) How is Jesus going to get her down here? Because she's scooting here. She's physical, this and that, and who do you are, and are you greater than this, and all right, give it to me, but I don't want to come here anymore. And, and people have often said, it seems like Jesus is so hard with what he does here in verse 16. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come back. That, that is not a stick it to this woman kind of a comment by Jesus. You know what that is? That is a comment to get her from here. To her deepest need. Do you see? Because she's just up here, up here, and she's like not connecting. Call your husband. And whatever's going through her mind in that moment, she has to be thinking, I don't know why I'm saying this. I don't even know this guy. But for whatever reason, in desperation, in hope, whatever's stirring up in her soul, she actually gives Jesus a, a, an honest response, doesn't she? Look at what she says. Verse 17. I have no husband. And look at what Jesus says. And again, folks, this is not a, I'm going to really embarrass you statement. This is a statement to expose her deepest need and thirst. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Do you realize how exposed she feels at this point? All right, I'm going to be somewhat honest. I don't have a husband. And Jesus goes beyond that. Actually, you're living with somebody. And he's not your husband. And all of your previous marriages, they've either failed or that guy has died. And again, we don't know. We don't know specifically. 
But Jesus looks at her, and what he does is he opens up her heart, and he knows her deepest need. And all I can tell you is in that moment, this woman is thinking to herself, he knows me at my deepest level, and he wants to give something to me. Do you see? Because now the whole story changes. This woman who has been this way, this way, this way, has taken a little risk with him with her openness. And Jesus has gone deeper into her sinfulness. Which is her ultimate thirst. And in exposing her at that level, for the first time in her life, she has hope. Isn't that the way it always is? I know the world tells us to downplay sin and all that kind of stuff, blah, blah, blah. But the deepest need of all humanity is forgiveness from their sins. And in this moment, this woman, in having herself exposed, she also has hope because he has approached her. Look at what happens next. And everything, the whole story is reversing. Beautiful stuff. Look at what it says in verse um, Jesus, uh, verse, verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. <laughs> you're, you're something. Now, it's going to be more than that, but she's on, she's on track here. Our, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus said, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His, worship, and his worshipers must worship Him in Spirit and in truth. So this woman who's being exposed has a question for Him. Because if you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, let's talk about this whole issue of worship. And Jesus says, let me tell you about worship. Number one, and he's, Jesus is straight with her. Your religion is wrong, isn't he? The true message of the gospel will come through the Jewish religion, and it did. However, at the end of the day, with the coming of Christ, it's no longer about a place. Doesn't matter, Jerusalem. You know what he's saying about Jerusalem with this statement? Because those that now come to worship God, they will worship him in the truth of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Christ is the ultimate revealer of truth. I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. That is Christ, plain and simple. And because God is a spirit and never bound to location, we will worship him from the innermost parts of our heart through the power of the Holy Spirit himself. And in this moment, he's saying, ma'am, 
forget the Jew Gentile thing. With me being here now, worship has moved to a whole different level. It is now the fulfillment of everything that was said in the Old Testament. And you and I, if you know Christ, if you have the, the water of the Spirit in your heart, which John 7 will tell us, the water is the Spirit. If you have that, and you know the truth of me, then you will have the ultimate thirst quencher spiritually. You will find forgiveness, restoration, the ability to come into the presence of God wherever you are, because it's always about Christ, empowered by the Spirit, and that's everywhere. Wow. Well, this is pushing this woman even farther. So look at verse 25. The woman said, I, I, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, am he. The disciples haven't been privy to any of this, folks. <laughs> I don't know. Do you not see yourself in the disciples like all the time? They are, I mean, I'm going to read now what they're going to say. Those guys are so much like us. It's scary. It's just scary. So, so this whole story is now reversed. This woman is like, I've taken a risk with him. He's plunged to the depth of my own sinfulness. He's given me hope that I can have a relationship with God. It's not about being Jew or Gentile or, or Samaritan or anything. I can worship him because of this unquenching, this, 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 this water within that will go on forever. I don't know what it all means, but man, it's great. And he is the Messiah. All that has come together in her mind. And so she is going to run back and tell everybody about it. And the disciples are just coming up and they don't have a clue what just happened. <laughs> Look at verse 27. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. I mean, you got to love these guys. So they come on the scene, and what level are they working on? Are they here? Or are they down here? They're up here too, aren't they? You watch what they say, and you go like, oh, it's so interesting. Um, so, but no one asked him, what do, you, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? But they all thought it. This woman leaves her water jar, goes back into the town, and tells people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, I want you to ask yourself the question. Would you want to go back and see that person? Because that means he can tell everybody what you've done too. You know what I'm saying? It's a little bit of a risk. But she comes back in. He has plunged to the depth of my soul. He knows who I am. And he wants me. Oh, I mean, wow. That's the message, isn't it? I mean, you would think Jesus only wants people who are pretty good. But this text tells me he breaks down to the very depth of this woman who's not a Jew, she's a Samaritan, 
She viewed herself as a woman not talking to a man. And a woman who is immoral, who took a risk and shared that. And Jesus revealed that. And he wants to still give her the spiritual water. And he's Messiah. And she tells the people. And you see a mass revival in Sychar. Which is an amazing thing. Because what typically happens when Jesus goes to Jerusalem? Does he get that kind of response? Tim spoke about it last week on Nicodemus. No. Even Nicodemus, by the end of John chapter 3, I still don't know what he's doing with this whole thing. We have to keep reading the gospel of John. We don't know. He's just like, yeah, careful, whatever. You know, I don't know what you're talking about either. And then it just kind of ends. But this woman, an outsider, one who has no right, who cares about her? She's blown it with five guys. She's with a sixth guy. Who cares about this woman? You know, people think that way about people in our day, don't they? They look at individuals and say, oh, that person's been through so many marriages. They're just a waste. And I would argue to you that Jesus would meet them at the well any day of the week. Isn't that the truth? And so the elite, matter of fact, you put, I don't even know why I put this up because you probably can't even read it. Sorry. Amen. Sorry. It was, Mark and I were talking about this. It, it's up there. I'll just tell you this. The contrast between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman are off the charts. They are as far apart as you can possibly imagine. And Jesus loves them both. But it is the Samaritan woman who responds clearly in John chapter 4. We have to wait on Nicodemus, at least at this point. Let me, for just a moment, um, kind of switch gears. And, and I want to throw into this story that little blue section there. Do you see that right there? There's an issue with the, the disciples. Um, their first issue is this. When they come and they see Jesus um, talking to a Samaritan woman, they've got all kinds of cultural barriers that pop up, don't they? You can't do that. That's wrong. Stop that. that. That's not how it works. That's not how our system works. So that's one of their barriers out here at this level. But there's a deeper barrier. Look, at it. Look in verse 31, and 30, 31 to 33. Meanwhile, Jesus' disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Now think about this. In all fairness to them, they went into the town for what reason? To get food so that he could eat. So they come back, and they're a little confused on things, and they say, Rabbi, eat something. Like, I get that. That's nice of them, actually. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Like, what are you going to do with that one? Well, in all fairness, they're thinking, well, maybe somebody else gave him some food already, I guess. Right? I mean, which is exactly what happens. Look at what he said. Look at verse 33. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? <laughs> Where is Jesus? Here or here? Is the physical issue important? Absolutely. We don't live without it, folks. But is it the most important? And Jesus has to try to push them from here to here. Look at what he goes on to say. 
Verse 34, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and and harvests a crop for eternal life so that both the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. They're thinking up here, hey, who gave him food? Did somebody beat us to the punch? What's he hanging out with her for? I'm afraid to ask him, but I can't help but thinking about it. Do you see? Jesus is saying, God has given me a mission. I have come from heaven to love the world. Ultimately, to give my life for the world so that they could be forgiven. And my whole life is about saving these people. That's the most important work. That's the thing we should hunger after more than anything else. That's my food and my bread. And Jesus asked the disciples, will you join me in this mission? And it's a mission you never do on your own. For you are reaping where someone else has sowed. Go out and as you minister, you do it under the authority of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, with other brothers and sisters of Christ who have been involved in it and are doing it too. And what happens is you go out and you, you share it, you share with people. Maybe they don't get saved then, maybe they get saved later, whatever. You're part of this grand mission where people come to faith in Christ and it's all connected to Jesus Christ himself. And that is the most satisfying hunger that we need filled as Christians. Do you see? This whole passage is talking about people. Everybody is hungry and everybody is thirsty. I don't find in the text that this woman ever drinks anything from that well. Or Jesus. I'm not saying they didn't. He just doesn't talk about it. I don't know that I don't know when Jesus ate that food. I'm sure he did at some point. But the text doesn't talk about it. When you go home today, you need to eat lunch. Of course you have to eat lunch. But there's something much deeper than just eating lunch. I have to tell you, I read this text, studied it this week. And I worry because far too often Finkbinder just scoots around up here. I do. Pay the mortgage college bills, make sure my kids are all doing well physically, pay my car insurance, have a good meal, think about doing this, call my friends. Now, is is that wrong? Do you say, that's wrong? No, it's life. It's life. And we have to do it. Jesus was thirsty. He had to drink. Eventually, he would eat. They needed to eat. They needed to drink. It's life. It's life. 
But this text is pushing us much deeper and saying, look, every time you pick up that glass to drink water, you should stop and think, you know, there was a time in my life when I trusted Christ and I became a Christian, I was given the Spirit, and I would never thirst spiritually again. Who can I give that glass to? Every time you cut that food up, and oh man, does it smell good! Put your fork in it, steak, man. I love chicken, actually, but whatever, you know, on a good day, salmon, whatever. You stick your fork in it, you You've given me a work to do, God, that is as good as this is. It doesn't compare to the work you've given me to do to tell other people about their need of Jesus Christ. Do you see? This passage is constantly moving us from here down to here. These Samaritans then, in verses 39 and following, come swarming in. And the Bible tells us that a whole bunch of them come to faith in Christ. And you know what they say? We believe you, not merely because the woman talked about the fact that you're the all-knowing one, but because we have heard your message and we believe you are the Savior of the world. Man, they got it. The, these Samaritans living in Sychar, they're right on. They weren't enamored by miracles for miracles' sake. They weren't enamored merely by Jesus' ability, but the ability shows who he is. They were enamored by him as Savior of the world. And this text tells us, since Jesus alone is the ultimate thirst quencher, let us come to him as Savior and then passionately help others do the same. The message, if you're here today and you say, Finkbeiner, if you knew my life, you'd ask me to walk out of this building. I hope I wouldn't. I hope I would never do that. But even if that was the case, it doesn't matter. Because Jesus would never say that. Jesus would say, you think you know yourself well? I know you better than you know yourself. And I offer you myself that you might be saved. That's his message to you. If you're here today and you say, I'm too far. You're never too far. Because we sang today, as deep as our sin is, what's deeper? Always the mercy of God. But for most of us, we've trusted Christ. And I have to tell you, when I read this passage, it's very convicting to me that I spend too much of my time scooting around up here. Don't hear me saying, we, then don't eat anymore, Finkbinder. No, of course not. We can't drive cars. No, you got to fill up the, ca- the gas and drive. It's, it's life. I mean, you got you to live life. But realize that that's not ultimate life, is it? You want to get down here. 
You want to say, God, there's an incredible harvest that you, there's this whole momentum of the gospel that you are already doing in this world. Can I step and be a part of that in the lives of others? And what you do there will be the most satisfying thing in life. Doesn't it strike you as interesting? I was reading about some of the most powerful stars and athletes in the world. And it, 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 he, he, he's, uh, he's retired now, but you remember Boris Becker? Great tennis player. He said, you know, when I got to the top of my game, I could have anything I wanted in this world. But peace in my soul was always elusive. I couldn't find it. Sophia Loren, after all of her accomplishments, my soul is empty. And I don't remember the exact quote, but I've heard it from Tom Brady. Like, look, if you, if you have aspirations of being a quarterback, <laughs> pretty good guy to follow. But you hear him interviewed, and it's never enough. Well, how many rings do you need, for heaven's sakes? Let me share a few more with Philadelphia Eagles, please. No, I, but whatever. But, but you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You take, you take guys who are at the top of their game, and in their quietest moments, they're still going to say there's something missing because we were not meant just to live here. And if you try to have this deepest hunger and thirst met anywhere else, it's called idolatry, you will always come up empty. Nothing else will do. And the gospel breaks down and says, you get to have Jesus. And it is so deep that it goes to the very core of your soul, and when you partake, it lasts forever. Give me that living water. Let's pray. Father, we, we are a people of great hope, not because of us. Because, Lord, as we look at our own lives and we look at the depth of our own sinfulness and we look at our failures and our brokenness and our own pain and our own difficulties and all those things, Lord. We don't have any hope. No, no, our, our hope is from the Lord. For you have come near. You have lived among us. You have been tired among us. You have hungered among us. You have thirsted among us. Because you were one of us. That you might die for us, rise from the grave, and offer us salvation. Father, for that we are eternally grateful. May we partake of that if we never have. And if we have, Lord, help us to be men and women that live at a deeper level and think not merely of putting food into my stomach, but sharing with others how one beggar 
has found food from Jesus Christ, spiritually speaking. Father, do that good work in our lives. We have the joy, we have the privilege of being part of your great reaping in the world around us. May we do our part for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, how appropriate that we would come to our communion service. Isn't it amazing that the God of the universe, who's never had a need, would become one of us and become tired and hungry and thirsty. And even declare on the cross of Calvary, I thirst. He was humbled so that he might die on a cross so that you and I would never hunger or thirst again. Isn't that unbelievable? It's the gospel. And we have the privilege as God's people, those who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, we have the privilege of coming together and remembering afresh the wonders of the cross.